This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This is like a standard kind of story. My child was neurotypical, maybe a little bit of anxiety, but nothing that was really out of, you know, really noticeable or had any impact on life. Then they had this infection. So it's not always the strep throat. If you can get a child that's doing quite well and one day the mother will ring me up and say, oh, he's having a pandas flare, my first question is, what did he eat? This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode, we delve into pans and pandas with a little bit of pyrolurea mixed in. The diagnostic criteria for pans includes an abrupt, acute and dramatic onset of OCD or severely restricted food intake and the concurrent presence of symptoms which have a similar severe and acute onset from at least two of the following categories, anxiety, depression, irritability, aggression or severe oppositional behaviours, behavioural regression, sudden deterioration in school performance, motor or sensory abnormalities such as tics, somatic signs and symptoms including sleep disturbance, or symptoms that are not better explained by a known neurologic or medical disorder such as SLE or Tourette's disorder. Paediatric naturopath Keone Moore is based in Melbourne and she's well known for treating PANS. So PANDAS is related to, as I understand it, um, related to a group A strep infection. But um, what about the causes of PANS? This is actually a really important conversation. So PANDAS is technically a type of PANS. So PANS is the umbrella term. I guess the trick is that most people search PANDAS or know of PANDAS more. So that's the more common term. But the reality is... I guess from a PANS point of view, that even when it was first discovered, it's been researched since the late 1980s uh, by Dr. Susan Sweeto and her research team at the National Institute of Mental Health. And even back then, they what they noticed is that there was a subset of children that developed tics and OCD following an infection. Now, even way back then, they recognised that it was a bunch of different infections, so Epstein-Barr virus, herpes simplex, uh, strep A, group A was one of them, but they, Coxsackie virus, they, even back then they knew that there was a long list of infections that triggered this. But as a research group, they made a decision to focus solely on the children that had the, 
the symptoms initiated by the Group A strep infection so that they could kind of leverage off the research body around rheumatic fever. Because rheumatic fever has a neurological component called syndrome chorea, which is almost identical to the symptoms of pandas. So the 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 criteria for pandas was never meant to be a clinical diagnosis. It was only for research purposes where they deliberately excluded children that had onset following other infections. The problem is that sort of got translated into clinical practice in a way that meant that a lot of children have been turned away saying you don't have pandas because you don't have evidence of a group A strep infection. But it's it's misleading because firstly, group A strep infections are incredibly common in children. So just because you have those positive serology doesn't mean that you have pandas. And also children with pandas, they might have a strep infection that initiates it. That serology is going to be positive for about six weeks afterwards. But their symptoms of pandas may extend for a lot longer. So if they don't get that test until three months after the initiation, they absolutely could have pandas, but their serology is not going to show evidence of a strep infection. So there are a lot of kind of issues that's been born out of this. And and Susan Sweeto herself has actually written a paper on the problems caused by that criteria because it was never designed for clinical diagnostic purposes. So the PANS uh, criteria is designed for clinical diagnosis and it is a clinical diagnosis. So there's no test that you can have that says, yes, definitively, my child has PANS or no, they don't. So the move is certainly in academia we talk about and at conferences we talk about PANS. We don't talk about PANDAS. It's only a type of PANS. Take me through the process of how you work through that and come to that conclusion. Well, the diagnosis or the idea of it being PANS usually comes from the parent. So it's very rarely that a child will go through a process of being diagnosed um, by a health professional because just the awareness is so low does happen occasionally, but not very often. So it'll be more parents coming in and saying, I think my child has pants. This is what happened. They tell me this story and they said, I came across it on Facebook because these parents are like research online becomes like their full-time job because they just don't understand what happened to their child. It's a very bewildering experience for them. So certainly from that point of view, my first and most important thing is, do they have PANS? Because I'm well known for treating it. So sometimes parents will come to me saying, I think my child has PANS and they don't. The reality is that tick disorders and OCD does exist in children. And it's estimated that about 25% of children actually have PANS. So... I'll still work with children that have a tick disorder such as Tourette's or OCD, but it's really important that I prove to myself that I'm actually tackling it from the right perspective, otherwise they're never going to get improvements. So I'll go through a case history. Uh, And certainly when you look at the diagnostic criteria and what a lot of parents, this is like a standard uh, kind of story, my child was neurotypical, maybe a little bit of anxiety, but nothing that was really out of, you know, really noticeable or had any impact on life. 
then they had this infection. So it's not always the strep throat. Uh, a case recently that I saw had pneumonia and then after that developed debilitating OCD and ticks. And then after a few weeks, it went away and we went, oh, okay, everything's fine. So they stopped worrying about it. And then the child got another infection. And this time it was a totally different infection. And then it all triggered off again. And then the life, and that one lasted a few months rather than a few weeks. Then it went away. But since their last infection, they've had ticks and OCD constantly. So this is a very typical kind of situation. So those ones, I don't really need any confirmation. It's like, you've just described to me the classic clinical course of, of bands. So that's, that's a good confirmation. The ones that are trickier is where, say for mold exposure. So mold is a known non-infectious cause of PANS. The onset is less sudden, as you would expect, because their exposure builds up over time. The home environment in terms of the mold load will build up over time. So you see a more gradual onset. And you don't see the remitting, relapsing clinical course where they have a flare, it lasts for a while, and then it goes away because they're constantly being exposed to the trigger. So they're the ones that are more difficult to ascertain whether it is PANS or not. And those cases, what I generally do is a ibuprofen challenge. So, which always surprises parents as a naturopath that I'm recommending that we go down that path. I'm always uh, very careful with the way that I present it to parents. Go, look, ibuprofen is not a long-term solution. If you do get remarkable improvements, I still only want you to do the five days, even though when you stop it, it will get worse again. Because, and I just explained to them that, you know, certainly ibuprofen is not good for the gut long term. And so this is more to test whether it's PANS, because ibuprofen is incredibly reliable for getting improvements in PANS. And no other condition, Jeremy, if your child has ADHD or autism, because there's a lot of crossover, there's a lot of gray area between the symptoms of these different conditions. That's not going to, you know, ibuprofen is not going to do anything for those conditions. So it's quite unique in its ability to uh, to do that. And I've got actually a great case. There's a uh, little boy who was diagnosed with Tourette's, had the most severe tics that I've ever seen uh, to the point that he couldn't feed himself with a fork because the tics were so severe. He couldn't kick a ball. He couldn't ride a bike. He couldn't write. He missed the whole term of school and pretty much could not do any activities of daily living because the tics were so severe. He didn't have any OCD, uh, so he didn't meet the criteria for the the PANS diagnostic criteria. He didn't meet that. So anyone looking for it on the outside in would go, okay, that, that is a Tourette's situation. But there were a couple of little things that just went, oh, that just doesn't feel right. So firstly, it was acute onset. So it just started suddenly. And it had a remitting relapsing course when it first started for the first sort of 12 months. But then the last two years, it had been consistent. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not really sure. I have no idea whether you have PANS or Tourette's, to be honest. So let's do the five-day ibuprofen challenge. And within 48 hours, he had no ticks. 
So you can imagine this is a little boy that had been on every medication you can, um, clonidine, SSRIs, a number of different SSRIs, uh, risperidone, which is an antipsychotic, and uh, had, you know, he was on about five different medications when he saw me. No improvement in his tics in that three-year period. So you can imagine, I guess, the parents' uh, response to seeing that improvement. Luckily, they did only do it for the five days and <laughs> didn't continue, but you can understand the temptation. <laughs> and so he's in a position now where he's had no tics for two years with just natural treatments. That's fantastic. Can you tell me about the ibuprofen challenge? Yes. So basically, I generally uh, recommend a gluten-free source of ibuprofen. So we generally go for Advil and twice a day um, on label recommendations for their weight and age, uh, twice a day for five days. And just, I don't necessarily expect them to completely clear all of their symptoms but a substantial reduction. So at least 30 to 40% improvement in their symptoms is what I'm looking for. And then what's the next step after that if they have a positive result like that little boy that you're talking about? So then I take them through my treatment process, which is quite convoluted. It does definitely include nutrigenomics and stool testing as well. But certainly that, that for me is the initial step because I need to work out, okay, what are we dealing with here? So that then I can go to the next step. The next step for me is definitely what I would call protecting the brain. So if we're thinking about this from a neuroinflammation point of view, then I'm less likely to go after the infection. So that's often what a lot of practitioners go, go, okay, strep caused it, let's go after the strep or a virus caused it, let's go after the virus. But from my perspective, I'm not actually blaming the initiating infection because a child should be able to get sick and not develop neuropsychiatric symptoms. So it's really an immune response that we're dealing with. And that's evident because even after the initiating inf infection's gone, the symptoms remain. So that's more around the immune responses. So my first point of call is to go, okay, what can we do to protect the brain? That commonly consists of curcumin and acetylcysteine, or NAC. Not always, but uh, it certainly is what I've found to be most reliable in terms of uh, getting that initial improvement. But it's certainly, that's the first line of just looking at it from protect the brain. The real work comes in re-establishing, retraining the immune responses, which to me is all about the gut microbiome and potentially nutritionomics to look at genetic predispositions to that in the first place. I guess this is a step back, um, but can you just describe the pathophysiology? You know, so the, you know, obviously there's an initiating infection, but then can you explain what happens after that? Yes. Well, this is the uh, work of many researchers around the world trying to work it out. So initially, PANDAS has the word autoimmune in it. Uh, so initially it was thought to be an autoimmune condition similar to rheumatic fever. But to date, there has been no reliable biomarker found to prove that it is an autoimmune condition. And I actually, as a practitioner, now just to note that this is my personal opinion, um, is that it is actually a problem with the innate immune responses. So I treat it from a gut microbiome, endotoxin, LPS, leaky gut, 
And then the impact of that on the immune responses initially. Then looking at, say, LPS, for example, on microglial activation. So that's the perspective that I'm coming from when I treat PANS. And certainly I have over 25 documented cases of complete resolution. So cases where they now get sick and don't have any flare of symptoms. And there is a neurologist in Sydney who is doing a lot of research into PANS, Dr. Dale. And he has come to the same conclusion as I have, that we actually both believe that it's an innate immune response issue. And at a recent conference I spoke at with him, he was talking about the role of butyrate, which is amazing. You did mention um, nutrigenomics, you know, or genomic testing in there as well. So would you do that in all cases or after you've kind of done the gut testing? I do it in all cases. So generally what I do is do the nutrigenomics and the gut testing at the same time. And then that way I can make a decision about which area I decide to treat first. I won't necessarily treat both, um, but certainly I will choose one or the other depending on their presentation and then follow up with. And you can generally get a sense of, particularly when I see these results for lots and lots of different children with a similar presentation, we're like, oh, that's a lot of genes. Do you know what I mean? Like that's going to be having a big impact. I definitely want to deal with that first before I, you know, the gut, you know, there's things to work on, but that's certainly not the predominant feature here. So you can make those decisions about clinically what's going to be most relevant for that individual. I know every case is different, but do you ever see any kind of patterns or things that stand out more than others in in either of those two sets of tests? Absolutely. So what I do find in PANS is slow CBS function. And I can count on one hand how many children that I've seen with PANS that don't have that. So it's very few. Like I wouldn't say that it's 100%, but it is the most consistent thing that I've seen. I've consistently seen changes in Mayo A activity, whether that's fast or slow, a combination of both. I do find that if Mayo A is slow, they're the kids that tend to get the aggression and the rages as a part of their pans, uh, whereas if it's fast, they tend to get more of the very severe separation anxiety. So generalizations, but just certainly things when I see a child with really severe aggression and, you know, we've got some pretty intense cases that we've seen in the clinic, I'll be like, hmm, I wonder what the Mayo A is. I'll never treat without checking it, but I'll always like, oh, I really want nutrigenomics for you. Apart from the, the curcumin and the NAC, any like favorites that you use or any kind of out of the box solutions like the herbal or nutritional that you would commonly use? They are probably the most consistent across different cases. I guess with the, I generally do do antimicrobials to be on a, in a pulsing regime where I'll alternate between antimicrobials to kill off the undesirable bacteria, then focusing on pre and probiotics. Often I'll be focusing on what can I do to increase interleukin-10 Remembering that butyrate increases interleukin-10, that's going to increase T regulatory cells. So a lot of my focus when it comes to PANS is how can we regain immune tolerance and modulation? So prebiotics and probiotics do focus very heavily and I might be even switching around the ones that I'm using. 
but always with a focus on let's get those T regulatory cells up. And what's your prebiotic of choice? I use a couple of different ones. So certainly if there's any constipation, because I actually do find constipation to be a fairly frequent issue with Pan's kids. Not all, probably about 50-50, but then I'll go for PHGG to really go, okay, first philosophy of naturopathy, isn't it, is just get the gut at least working. And, and that makes a difference in of itself. So PHGG, acacia gum, I'm a fan of in terms of increasing butyrate. Um, but certainly I think there's a role to be rotating them. And certainly uh, some of our gut testing can inform us to, okay, where do we need to focus our prebiotics so that we're really a good cross-reference of um, you know, potentially growing a range of different beneficial bacteria. And I guess, is that the same philosophy you have for the probiotics as well, kind of switching the probiotics around? I generally do like to focus on ones that have evidence to increase interleukin 10 or improve gut integrity. So if we're reducing intestinal permeability, uh, I see that as an incredibly beneficial thing for Pan's children. So Lactobacillin plantarum 299V would be kind of my go-to for increasing interleukin 10, though there are some other formulas as well. In terms, I use a few different ones for improving gut integrity. So even LGD, for example, has evidence for that. Every case is different, but how long does it normally take the process for, for a child to, to start seeing some benefit? Absolutely. Great question. So I normally will see an improvement in their symptoms in, the, in one to two months. When we're looking at the cases of total resolution, I can say it's about six to nine months. And I didn't actually realize that until I've been writing up case studies to eventually write a book on all of this, which feel like it's never going to actually happen, but it will, it will. But I've been writing up all the case studies as a part of that. And it was really interesting because when I wrote it up, it's like, oh, that was six months. Oh, that was seven months. Oh, that was six months. So it was actually through that process that that's how I realized the timeline was six to nine months. I say up to nine because some children have extra complicating factors. Uh, so recently we've worked with a child that also has a salicylate intolerance. So that makes it incredibly difficult to get gut work done if we've, our ability to use herbs is limited. So that, that was always going to take a bit longer. Dr. Frank Golick is an integrative GP who's been a family physician for over 40 years. He deals with many complex conditions in children. In the last episode, we heard the range of symptoms and behaviours he sees in his young patients. One common combination that he encounters is pyrolurea and pandas. It can be very dramatic or it could be subtle. So the dramatic one is where this is absolutely overnight change in demeanour, behaviour, it's startling and it's frightening to parents. So you get a very normal neurotypical child who overnight becomes quite strange. Psychotic is not a strong enough word for it, I don't think. Um, there's delusion. Some of them are just like space cadets. They're just in another world. They'll start sitting, getting different rituals, OCD sort of things, so quite obsessional, compulsive. Often a little bit of elements of the... Uh, oppositional defiance as well come in, particularly about foods and rituals and, and different ways of doing things. 
Um, so it becomes quite a strange child that they've never met before. They they can, you know, I've heard of situations where a child might come back to the house after being away for a while and they have to lay down paper all over the pathway, right up the steps so the child doesn't walk on certain things or they just will obsess about certain foods or think um, I've had an adult um, a situation who thinks the food and the water has been poisoned by the parents and there's a syndicate that's trying to um, cause her demise. Um, so quite nasty, nasty symptoms. Then it can be more subtle with just that OCD, just those just annoying behaviours to the child and just ritualistic behaviours. Yeah, we think about some of the um, physical signs. Sometimes you'll see peeling around the fingers or they're picking at the skin and the nails uh, or tearing at their hair. Um, some of those things can be side features as well. Um, just a clinical feature if you get the child standing, feet apart, standing up with their hands outstretched and just watching them if they were eyes closed. Um, some of them will, will do the piano piano playing movements with their fingers. So that's not always a classical sign, but if it's present, it's um, quite quite significant. And another very rarer form of movement disorder is chorea. So chorea form movements with these, these writhing, um, almost graceful movements, but that was associated with streptococcus in post-delivery uh, in women. Um, so that was called Sindenham's um, career as well, also found in um, rheumatic fever. So some of these things that from the from the past have come back into this sort of cluster of symptoms. And just, just going on to pyroluria, what are some of the levels of HPL that you find in some of these kids? That, that's a range and there can always be error in any test. Um, some of the kids will go when they're in a calm state and they won't record a particularly high level. I often say it doesn't hurt for them to be a little bit worked up over something so they can they can wee out a little bit more um, pyrols. Um, so I don't always believe the test um, in, in that context. So, But, you know, they can be 20 to, to 60. I've seen a child up to 200. So um, that's not common in my experience, but it's certainly out there. And those child, if you get, if you get a combination of pyrols and pandas together, the P and P, that's a really wild, disturbed child. But they can settle if we can handle it and if the parents can can weather the storm and, and get through, it can be amazing, the result. And as far as approaching supplementation for kids with pyrourea, what, where are the doses at? So up to like that 80 to 90 elemental for a medium-sized child or, or more for those kids with pyrourea of zinc? If it was very high pyrourea, we could go higher. I mean, I've, I've gone up to 120 at times and you might people might get a bit scared by that. But honestly, if you measure them regularly, I certainly would do every three months until we get a level playing field. Um, you're not going to cause any harm. Um, you know, a child can get very nauseated if the zinc gets too high. So it, it's a safe, safe thing to do. And do you slowly increase that that zinc level, like introduce those zinc levels? In children, we, we um, use what we call a primer capsule. So it's only got 25 milligrams of zinc, um, 25 of P5P, active B6, and 50 of uh, magnesium glycinate. And so that's where we start one or two of those capsules, usually in the evening, because the morning's a bit difficult initially to start with, especially if there was a pyrrole issue. 
and we just um, just monitor how that's going. And it could take me three to six months to getting up to that level that I was talking about. Can you talk me through um, pandas or, or even how you would deal with a child that's got that combination of pyroluria and pandas, please? So I think the, the nutrients we talked about to start with is very important. Biotin can be important there, of course with pyroles. Look, some people with a very high level will go definitely for any primrose oil, borage oil, black currant oil. Um, that can be combined even at early stage with a little bit of fish oil if you want to, um, but uh, very high, we, we don't push the, the omega-3s early on. Uh, later on, that's okay to do so. Can We can switch those oils over. But getting that um, PFRP, the active B6 and zinc up, with magnesium is very important. Magnesium is so calming. Um, getting vitamin D right is so important and critical as well in all these children. I, I rarely see anyone has got a reasonable vitamin D level. So that's another critical thing to get right early on. Even iodine is important, um, starting off with some Lugol's iodine if their iodine levels are low. But yeah, and getting that food right, it's just so important. And having the atmosphere in the house or the school correct less triggers, less sensory triggers, so noise, um, glare, glare, you know, they're very tactile sensitive as well, so that can be problems even with putting creams on them. Of course, they're known as tag cutters, so they often cut off the, the labels off their, their shirts uh, or blouses because of the, the nylon stitching which annoys their skin. Um, so they have so many factors that can trigger them, um, sensory things with smell too, so they'll smell B-group vitamins a mile off. Um, so sometimes I'll say, just put the, the capsule that might have some B groups in the freezer for about five minutes um, before they ingest it so that it reduces the odour. Or putting them through different ways. Um, some of the children will just put some, the capsule in a little bit of um, pawpaw ointment, um, safe non-petroleum pawpaw ointment on the soles of their feet and put a sock on at night time. So there's all little tricks to trying to, to get it in without disturbing the child too much. I use, I use often homeopathics as well uh, for gut healing and for calming the emotion at times as well. And what about pandas, Dr. Golick? Where do you start with pandas, you personally? Number one thing will be for me to try and control the streptococcal issues. So they have a reservoir up in their sinuses and adenoids. They have the strep in their mouth. So we have to have a, a nasal spray, which they're meant to sniff hard up with a very soft spray it's a combination of salt, bicarb, and xolitol. Xolitol will help break the biofilms. And we use nanoparticle silver, um, low dose, um, just three drops to an application. And um, they've got to sniff that up. So the silver has been, that nanoparticle has been shown to penetrate biofilms. And it's a great antimicrobial. So they'll often have candida up there in those sinuses or adenoids as well. So getting that control, that's important to do twice a day cleaning the teeth um, and soaking the toothbrush and picksters in 6% hydrogen peroxide, cleaning them first with that hydrogen peroxide and seeing the myriads of oxygen bubbles releasing to kill the bacteria. And using I use a lemon myrtle toothpaste from northern New South Wales um, and that's got xylitol and the lemon myrtle um, is antibacterial. So we're trying to keep that reservoir quiet. We're swallowing litres of saliva nasal secretions into our gut every day. And if we only treat the gut without looking at the upper reservoir, we won't get success. And then with the gut, 
We use um, biofilm enzymes, plant enzymes. We use um, a product um, from Siberia, uh, which is a specific Siberian pine tree, the, the melted needles of that, which seems to be a good selective weeder. And we use um, plant enzymes to rupture the yeast cell wall of Canada. So we do that twice a day on an empty stomach before food. And we do that for that whole program for at least three months plus. And after that, we do one week every every month for about six months. That won't always get your population of those down completely, but it does make a, a good impact. If we get a, a massive wholesale takeover of the aerobes of the gut, so maybe 90 more percent of the of um, streptococcus enterococcus um, and virtually no E. coli, um, I will use some E. coli capsules from Germany um, and I'll use sometimes a 30 days of azithromycin antibiotic. I know everyone doesn't like antibiotics and I rarely use them, but sometimes you just have to. If these children are way off, completely delusional, quite scary, um, you know, they can be psychotic. It's, it's a very difficult situation there. Um, obviously, we can't drastic things to children, young children, but older children in America, they will think about plasmapheresis or IVIG. Um, sometimes they'll use steroids to quieten the brain. But, you know, I, I'm reluctant to use steroids, but um, sometimes we'll find other things, low-dose naltrexone maybe, uh, sometimes resveratrol, curcumin, sometimes luteolin um, as well can be helpful for all that. And how long can it take some the, the, the process for some of these kids and even teenagers with, with pandas? It can be a prolonged issue. Um, sometimes you'll win very quickly and um, just getting that diet right. So, again, the fundamental thing is we're not feeding the gut flora, the abnormal weed garden, what I call it, in the gut with any what I call fertilisers of food. So, all the grain starches, sugars, of course, the sweet fruits and so forth, are just going to feed that. If you can get a child that's doing quite well and one day the mother will ring me up and say, oh, he's having a panda's flare, my first question is, what did he eat? And usually they've had something at school or something inappropriate, uh, one piece of sweet fruit, an ice cream, uh, a bit of cake, whatever, and that strep will just erupt so quickly, a break out of its biofilm in the gut and it will re-establish so quickly and those kids can change in 24, 48 hours and it's so sad but um, after a while those little mishaps, the parents realise how important the food is to keeping control, keeping the lid on things and I always say I wish I had a napalm bomb, some magic pill but there is none. Um, so it's constant vigilance and it's, it's long term, it's, it's not short time. Would you say that pandas could be one of those triggers for um, kind of first episode psychosis in, in teenagers? I think it's largely unrecognised in psychiatry. Um, I've got an older patient in her young 20s. She has done the rounds of psychiatric hospitals and psychiatrists in town. Uh, we only had one lovely psychiatrist to recognise it as not being classic schizophrenia um, and was open to the idea of uh, neural inflammation their, their brain, their basal ganglia particularly, are highly inflamed and reactive. Um, so I've also got a child down in in the country area of New South Wales who has got classic chorea. Um, so they can get movement disorders apart from just tics or 
or those spasms, or it can be vocal, physical um, tics, and can have Tourette's as well. So you've got a whole spectrum of presentations that can happen there, um, and it's very, very sad. Um, I've seen other young children just in fantasy world, their eyes are just roaming around the room just aimlessly and just totally disconnected. So it can be quite scary. What about those children who are, you know, suicidal, maybe cutting themselves? Um, what do you normally think when that, when those kind of kids or teenagers probably um, come in? So again, we think about what foods they're having. Um, and I might sound boring about that, but it's so, so, so important. Electromagnetic frequencies, how much they're on screen time, addicted to that. Um, what are the chemicals that they're getting? Are they getting things with... Um, you know, additives, chemicals, preservatives, are they on some illicit drugs? Um, so marijuana can be disturbing and can uh, a small percentage can start with a trigger with marijuana as well. And, and what other disturbances going on in their life? So, you know, they, like any anyone, can be getting bullied at school. They can be um, threatened on the internet as well. Um, so some of those kids have really tangible simple, well, not simple, but um, just common, common issues apart from having biochemical issues. And then you think about the gut flora again, um, that can disturb the children apart from food so dramatically. Um, you know, your gut flora can change within two weeks of eating the inappropriate foods or better foods. So you come down to the fundamentals all the time. Sometimes you've got to go into deep, deep counselling with those kids as well and try and find out, tease out what's going on in their lives. Um, so sometimes there's a, a psychological component, definitely, but sometimes it's uh, enteric. Uh, it's it's from their gut or their brain, from their biochemistry or gut flora. Both practitioners find their chosen specialty very rewarding. As with many naturopaths, Keone Moore's personal experience led her to the profession. How did you come to work in the area of kids? Like what, what is your driving motivation for working with kids? Actually, my own children. So I have four children and I initially became a naturopath really because my second child, my son, was constantly sick. So he ended up back in hospital when he was three days old, despite being breastfed. And then it was a matter of illness after illness after illness, antibiotics after antibiotics after antibiotics. And I, I did grow up, I had no exposure to natural medicine at all. So I just went to the doctor and did what they said and just started to get to the point where I'm like, this is obviously not working. We need to think about this from a different perspective. And so I actually saw a naturopath for the first time myself and she gave me some herbs and some zinc, which I took. I didn't actually give anything to my son. And the results were so incredible. I was just instantly, you know, changed the course of my life, essentially. But in terms of PAN specifically, my son was diagnosed with a post-strep autoimmune kidney disease um, when he was in, his, in high school. So that really started to kind of sharpen my focus. I've always been pediatric, but really sharpened my focus on autoimmunity and strep-related issues, which naturally took me into pandas and then following into pans. 
How would you describe working with children and families? It's very rewarding, isn't it? Absolutely. It's incredibly intense and challenging, to be honest, especially when we first start working a family because parents are incredibly concerned and that can translate into an intensity, I guess, in terms of clinical practice of they really want some results for their children and I can totally understand that. So I like to see myself as the calming influence in their life and really, I guess, give them confidence that it's not always going to be like this, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. There are ways to improve the situation because I guess that's really what's in the back of parents' mind is like, is this life for them? They really worry about their future and what it means for their children as they get older. So seeing those examples of cases that have had complete turnarounds is, I think, brings a lot of hope. And I can see how you would be a calming influence. I actually have one mum that she was she was really concerned about some things that were happening for her daughter. And she told me she got off the call. She went and said to her husband, Keanu was really calm, so I just know everything's going to be okay. Oh, that's what you want. And it just gave her, <laughs> yeah, gave her such a sense of, feeling cared for, which I think is um, an important part of the therapeutic process as well. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we talk atopic conditions and food introduction with Chinese medicine practitioner and naturopath Dr. Sandy Ross and Sydney-based naturopath Tabitha McIntosh with a special case study from naturopath Emma Sutherland. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. Music